Are you ready for some Bible study? I am. Commandments, the 10 words. I said last week, we don't call them commandments or the Bible doesn't call them commandments. The Bible calls them 10 words. You know that you don't have to get too legalistic about that stuff. That's just um, the fact of the matter is that God spoke all these words. The scripture says, doesn't say commandments. We're not going to get legalistic about that. Never get, you know, radically committed to some, some view of the Bible like that. That's just an unhealthy way to go. Have flexibility with your study of the word of God. Trust me, you will be glad if you have flexibility. And part of that flexibility is letting God speak to you and letting him speak that things into your life that you may not want to hear. So we're going to go through commandments one through five. Let me first erase a uh, misnomer that might be in your mind. And that is that when Moses came down the mountain with the tablets, he had laws one through four, or some say laws one through five on one and laws six through 10 on another. Okay. That is actually a misnomer. There's a, a lot of historical research being done into the idea of ancient covenants. We've talked about that on this channel already on this season of the deep dive. You know, uh, Caesarean covenants, um, ancient covenantal agreements and practices. We talked about the prologues, the preambles, the stipulations, the blessing, cursing, the rehearsings. We talked about those six par parts of ancient um, Near Eastern covenants. But there's another one that will obliterate the idea of five on one tablet and five on another. And some say, again, four on one tablet and six on the other, because the first four deal exclusively with God. But we're going to talk about today that actually the first five deal with our relationship to God, and we're going to show you how. And then the, the second five, or some say the last six, deal with our relationship one to another, or vertical commandments and horizontal commandments. Okay, we're going we're gonna to blow this idea away. There is actually far more better research showing that According to ancient world customs, you made two copies of the same covenant. So guess what that means? The reason why Moses had two tablets is because one was the people's uh, copy and one was God's copy. And one was placed into the, and, and I'm sorry, both were placed into the ark to kind of seal the deal there. We come together through the, through the law and the law is our, in the ancient world, pathway to Yahweh and then, or our covenantal agreement with Yahweh, Christ comes and fulfills the law. He is our true ark. He is our true uh, Moses. He is our true um, David and King. And he is the one who makes a way for us to come back to God. So that might be, again, another small little thing that just kind of gets obliterated in your mind about this idea that there was five on one tablet and five on another. Don't worry about it if you see, even on this channel, we show you graphics like that. Don't worry about that if you see the Ten Commandments movie and think, I can't watch this anymore. It should be 10 and 10. It shouldn't be one, five and five or four and six. No, don't get worried about that kind of stuff. Again, flexibility. So when it comes to studying the Word of God, we want to hear what God says, and that brings us to commandment number one. And we're not going to spend too much time with it because this one's pretty simple and it's very short. Exodus 2, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. The other word for that uh, word in Hebrew uh, before could be besides. And um, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 7 says the same thing. So, the, oh, by the way, the word for before is alpana. If you are taking notes in the Hebrew, I doubt that you are. But what this idea of being before him is, the word could be um, translated to my face. You shall not put any other God to my face before me. In other words, I'm looking at you. And the phrase is actually referred to in another portion of the Torah as the idea of taking a second wife. So you think about right here in the first commandment, God is setting the stage for the kind of relationship that he wants with his people. And this is also going to come out in law number two. And the relationship structure is husband to wife or fidelity, uh, faithfulness. 
God is going to resolutely commit himself to the people of Israel and through Jesus Christ, those who are called to him. And the people are to resolutely commit themselves faithfully to God. There is to be fidelity. There's to be this marital covenant between God and his people. So the second thing that this first law tells us is that God is one. He is, there is no other. There is no equal to Yahweh. Now, some people don't realize this, but Israel and Moses gave to the world something the world had never known before. It's called monotheism. Monotheism is the idea that there is one God. There is one God. Every other ancient people believed there were a multiplicity of gods. The Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, the Canaanites all believed this. Any anthropologist worth his weight in salt will tell you the truth. And that is the only culture, the only people that ever brought monotheism, one God worship to the world is Judaism, ancient Israel. This is a gift that God gave through that people to us. Uh, before then, people worshiped anything and everything. They worshiped rocks. They worshiped stones. They worshiped land. They worshiped people. They worshiped stars. They worshiped celestial bodies. And uh, ancient people believed primarily in three categories of God. They believed in a personal God. So you would have household gods like Rachel does. Remember when Jacob leaves with Rachel and Leah and Laban comes and chases down his daughters and says, hey, 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 you left without my daughters. You didn't even say goodbye. And she fakes that she has her period so that she doesn't get down because she stole the household gods from Laban. That's an interesting story. So, but anyway, in the ancient world, the, there was personal gods. There were family gods. You have a weird story at the end of the book of Judges where you have a guy who hires a priest and creates a shrine for himself to have his own kind of personal religion. And then you have the national God, which would be represented by a temple. This is maybe part of the reason, and we discussed this in the life of David, that David wanted to build a temple because he wanted a big temple to show off his big God. Anyway, those three categories are all supplanted by the idea that there is one God who is over all areas of your life. He is your national God. He is over the nations, not just your nation, but every nation. He is over the families of the earth. Okay, that's why the Bible deals with all these family relationships and families of the earth. It talks about that in Genesis. And then you have the personal God. Now think about that right off the bat. We're only in the first commandment and we're learning so much about God through his word to Israel. He is the God over all persons. He is the God over all families. He's the God over all nations. And there is no such thing as we talked about on the deep end last night. There is no such thing as multiculturalism. I know we want to think multiculturalism is a plus. It's what we want. We want to embrace all cultures. No, we don't. We want to embrace the culture that the Bible, the Judeo-Christian ethic brings to the world. It is the freest culture. It is the most humane culture. It is the most civilized culture. It has changed the world. It has literally redefined history around AD and BC. Civilized world owes its civilization to the Bible. And anybody telling you differently is lying to you or are just they're just ignorant of history. Judaism gives the world monotheism. Now, I said this last night on the deep end and it bears repeating today. When monotheism really took root in the ancient world was through Christianity, through the spread of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the announcement that he is the Lord God, the God, the son who has come to reconcile us to God, the father, and then fill us with the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit. Monotheism starts to take over the Roman world, the Greek world, the foreign nations around Rome, beyond Rome. Well, you've got a spiritual enemy who's in the, in the unseen realm saying, what do I do? What do I do? Monotheism is taking over. Guess what he does? He invents a duplicate, a counterfeit. And I talked about this last night. That counterfeit is what? Is, is Islam. Islam is Satan's first monotheism. I'll never forget when I met a guy who used to go to a very liberal Lutheran church. I met him at a barbecue. This was years ago on a July 4th barbecue. And he said, hey, tell me, you're a pastor. I said, yes. And uh, he was going to a Lutheran church, very liberal Lutheran church. He said, tell me what your thoughts, on are, uh, thoughts are on Islam. And I said, it's Satan's first monotheism. His jaw dropped. He said, I have been looking for a pastor to say that for I don't know how long. And uh, it's just a sad, you know, commentary on the state of many churches, many denominational churches, particularly mainline denominational churches. But it is also true. People are looking for truth. And he said, that's exactly right. I never put it that way. It is Satan's first monotheism because up until Judaism and Christianity, 
Every other pagan religion, every other form of religion was polytheistic. Poly, many, theistic, or theism, God, theos, God. So monotheism comes to us through Judaism, and in the very first commandment, it is, there's no other God. Now, by the way, the reason why you don't want, uh, the reason why you want to practice this law is because no other God will do. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. When God starts to speak comfort over his people and he talks about what he's going to do, but then he gets to this nitty gritty here in verse 11 and he starts asking some questions. He says, who measured, let me just adjust my mic. Who measured the waters in the hall of his hand? Who measured the spirit of the Lord? Uh, what man can counsel him? He says, who did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him path of justice? Goes on and on like this for, for a while. Gets down to verse 17. The nations are as nothing before him. Then he says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness we compare with him? An idol, a craftsman crafts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Have, has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Um, on and on and on it goes. There is no God like Yahweh. That is the heart behind the first commandment. That is the heart behind you shall have no other gods before me. You don't have anyone first. Now, modern people will say, oh, we have moved on from worshiping, you know, trees and rocks and sculptures. No, we haven't. We've just replaced them. This is a modern tree. This is a modern idol right here. And if you're listening, I'm holding up the iPhone, right? I could pick up my iPad and say, here we go. Here's a modern idol. The, the, what, the thing about the modern idols of our ages, they do for us what we need to be doing for uh, in the name of God, don't they? An iPod is a wonderful tool. I'm using it right now to teach you the Bible. But an iPad can also be a convenient, secular, pagan babysitter for my child, can it not? You can hand this to your child and never see your child for the rest of the day, and the child will be perfectly happy to have that little amber glow on his face for 24 hours or 16 hours or however long. You got to be careful. These modern idols, uh, computers, cars, houses, these are things that man makes and says, if I have that, I will be happy. If I own that, if that is mine, if I have this relationship to this huge, you know, I don't know, this community, if I live in this area, if I have this kind of spouse, if I have these kind of children, anything can become a God. Anything can become, anything has the capacity to become our functional savior. And that's where the first commandment really hits the road for us. I am 16 minutes into this episode. I'm sorry, we've got to move on or else I'll never get anywhere. And let's get to commandment number two, because we're going to really unpack these next four commandments. Commandment number two, it says uh, the following, you shall not make for yourself an a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down, bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay. No idols. Now, we always think that means no, again, trees shaped into little gods, or that means no stones carved into little images of false gods. But did you ever think about this? He's actually talking about don't make an image of me. Don't make an image that you think reflects me. This is very interesting if you think about it, because we do this all the time. We break this commandment all the time. You just head over to Google, go to the image tab and search Jesus. And what are you going to see? This is what you're going to see because I just did this the other day. Okay. Let me just give you the straight dope on all those guys on the screen right now. That's not Jesus. And <laughs> there is a good chance that he looked nothing like that. He was a Middle Eastern Jew from the first century, probably brown skinned, maybe a little bit darker than brown. I don't know. Probably had some strange features, did not have his hair conditioned. There was no conditioner. There were no gels. OK, <laughs> you, you've got to watch out for this because people do this, particularly Catholic people. Catholics, if you're listening, I'm so glad you are. But be careful of your iconography. 
the little statutes of Jesus, statutes of Mary, statutes of Joseph, the Holy Family. You think these things bless your life. They are not. They are inanimate objects. They are not able to bless you. If they focus your mind on God, do they help? I hear that in somebody's mind right now. You know, I think that they can hurt more than they can help. Um, interestingly enough, I have on my desk here. Do you know what this is? I went to Rome this past uh, summer with my wife. This is the Colosseum in a, um, what is that called? A snow globe. There we go. Woo. There we go. It barely snows in Rome, but they sell these things because they'll sell anything. And this is the Colosseum. What does this do to the real Colosseum? It minimizes it. It shrinks it down. It makes it, it, makes it smaller than it really is. It, it tells me that the Colosseum is not that impressive. We've got to be careful with iconography, iconography, because we can do that with God. We can make him smaller than he is, okay? We are not, we have no idea what Jesus looked like. The other day I had a guy come to my church. Actually, he comes to my church and he asked me in the hallway after church, he said, listen, let me ask you something. Why don't we have pictures of Jesus in the church? And I said, because we have no idea what he looks like. And uh, this guy that I was talking to was a black man and I'm a white man or, you know, mostly white. I'm a pretty dark skinned Italian, although the lights are so bright. I, I look pretty white right now. Anyway, <laughs> we're having a conversation. I said, isn't it great? We don't know what he looks like because I can't claim him as white and you can't claim his, him as black and nobody can claim him as their own white, their own skin color. And I think God did that on purpose because he's not the God of the black people or the white people. He's the God of all people. And so we have to be careful that we don't make images of God, um, the true God, in ways that break this command, that reflect him. By the way, this commandment is interesting because as God was giving this commandment to the people of Israel, to Moses on the mountain, the people of Israel we're literally breaking this commandment. <laughs> it is actually a sad commentary in the human heart. But if we go to Exodus 32, verse four says, and he, Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. You say, why calf? Because guess what the Egyptians worshiped? They worshiped cows. That was one of the plagues on the cattle of Egypt. He made it into a golden calf and they said, these are your gods, O Israel. Look at what they say who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Hello, they're giving God, they're giving those golden calves credit for the unseen God's work, which means that the calves were an image to reflect the true God. Understand what idolatry does. And it leads to a, a very important theological concept. And I want you to hear this as clearly as I can possibly convey it to you. Wrong ideas about the right God are just as damaging as worshiping the wrong God. Did you hear me say that? Wrong ideas about the right God are just as damaging as worshiping the wrong God. This is why doctrine matters. This is why Paul tells Timothy, guard your life and your doctrine. Because if you, if you do these things, you'll be saved. This is why we, we have to find churches. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, get into your church where your pastor is teaching you doctrine, not just teaching you about feelings and all these other ideologies of mankind. We have to get back to doctrine, teaching the truth of Scripture, because people don't know God. They have an idea about God. They have feelings about God, but they don't know God. And what we have here, right here in the second commandment, is a command to make sure that we do not reimagine what we want him to be. He is not the God of our former life, the God of Egypt. He is not that golden calf, okay? We even get the cultural euphemism, oh, there's a golden calf in your life. Oh, it's a, it's a sacred cow in your life. This is where that euphemism comes from because we can make sacred cows out of our denomination. Oh, I'm only this or I'm only that. We can make sacred cows out of our family. We can make sacred cows out of our own religious practice. By the way, the second commandment literally obliterates our, our ability to save ourselves through our own works because even your religious works be can, can become a sacred cow. Even your religious works. Well, I, I do the Eucharist every week and I confess my sins to a priest and I um, go to mass seven times a week. And okay, that's not saving you though. That's not saving you. Be careful that you don't let even your own religious practice become a sacred cow in your life. And you on intentionally or subconsciously start to worship God through the sacraments, through the processes of your religion, instead of through the understanding of what he has declared once and for all, the faith given once and for all to the world. This is um, also 
countering exactly what the devil did with uh, Eve right in the garden with the woman. She wasn't called Eve yet, but he says, did God really say? And then he twists God's words. You can't eat any tree from the garden of Eden. He's literally just reimagining God right there. This is what you, you see in uh, Exodus 32, like we just talked about. This is what happens when Jeroboam starts his you know, false religion and sets up the high places in, and sets up the two altars in Dan and Beersheba. Um, sorry, no, in Samaria and in Beersheba. Yeah. We talked about that in the Kings of Compromise last year. So you have this regular temptation to worship the right God with the wrong imaginations. God cannot be what you want him to be, and he will not be what you want him to be. He is who he is, and it is our job. The second commandment is calling on us to discover him for who he is, not to make him what we want him to be. Let's read a little bit more from this commandment because it's imperative to our hearts and formation as followers of Jesus. He says in verse five, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. By the way, this verse is the linchpin for Oprah Winfrey's abandonment of her Baptist upbringing. You can look on YouTube. You can find the testimony for yourself. I don't want to play it because I'll get flagged on the content and you can look it up for yourself. But she said, I had a problem when I was in a Baptist, you know, kind of very charismatic uh, church service. There was a call and response and the pastor said, and he's a jealous God. And she stopped and she thought everybody was cheering. Yes, he's a jealous God. How dare God be jealous? Okay. That is a very human understanding of what this means in the text. The word jealous is kana in Hebrew, and it's literally the word that could be referring to heat and fire. Now, you will understand this if you're married, and I understand when single people don't get this, or even Oprah Winfrey as a child or as a young person didn't get this, because you're not married yet. Once you're married and you covenant and you agree together to have only yourself for that one person, and then they break that covenant and they go and they mess around with somebody else. What, what happens in here? Heat, fire, jealousy, rage. That is how God feels toward you. Now, now let me ask you this question. Those of you who have a problem with God being jealous, or if you have somebody in your life that you know has a problem with this idea of God being jealous, just ask them, are you married? What would happen if your wife cheated on you or your husband cheated on you? How would you feel? I'd feel hideously bad. I'd feel resentful. I'd feel hateful. I'd feel angry. Okay. That's what God feels when we walk away from him. See, not so bad when you put yourself in the position here of how he has chosen to relate to us. God, but, but, but ultimately what I want to teach you from this text and this commandment is God feels, he feels jealousy toward us and for us. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> we, we, we are invited in the second commandment to feel and experience the heart that God has for us. He longs for us. He desires us when we don't have him. He is jealous for us. Now, these are human words. We can't truly understand God's heart fully this side of heaven, but we can kind of understand it in human terms. So it is also the idea of a parent who loves and, and raises their children. But what if that child r would rather go down the street and eat supper with their, their friend's uh, family? Doesn't a parent have the right to feel jealous over that child? That is good jealousy. That is godly jealousy. Okay, moving on. Look at this next part of the, of the commandment. He says, I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing uh, steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, this is another passage that people have a problem with. Does God punish people who didn't, does he punish the children, the offspring? Okay, let's talk about it. Let's discuss this. That's why we do deep dive Bible study for an hour on Wednesday nights, because we can take our time. We can pause. We can go to other passages. We can look at it. Okay. The idea is generational sin. Well, let's take a look at Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. It says, um, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Okay, first off, we're being asked here to see that there is something called legislative justice. 
That's what this text is dealing with. Legislative justice is the idea that the community will legislate and act justly when there's conflict, when there's sin, when there's crimes committed in the community. And in this passage, Deuteronomy 24, that's what it's about. You will not punish the father for the sins of the child. And conversely, you will not punish the child for the sins of the father. But listen, and this is so important. This is not talking about how God will treat generational sin. Because you literally have to be ignorant of every reality of human of the human condition to think that there are not consequences on the next generation from the sins of their previous generation. I mean, that's just that's just basic humanity 101. I I want to tread lightly here because I don't want you to think that your situation is hopeless if you were raised by you know very wicked sinners or very bad people. That that that's the last thing that I want to do here on this channel. I really want to give you hope, absolutely. But let's just talk about this a little bit clo- uh, closer. First, a scientific approach. Did you know that there is a good amount of scientific discovery going on right now about something called epige- epigenetic change in the human condition? Epigenetic change is the study of how our behaviors and environment can cause uh, changes that affect the way our genes work. So your parents went through the Great Depression, and some of you know this, or your grandparents went through through the Great Depression. So your parents are very tight-fisted, and they were raised that way. And then maybe, you know, your parents were raised in the the dot-com explosion, so they're very loose with their money, and it comes into your life. You, you have no idea. One generation affects another. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I found this research page at Discovery News. I forget the website. I think it's discoverynews.com, but uh, it was talking about the fact that grandma's experience, this is the title of the article, leave a mark on your genes. And then it literally says, like silt deposited on the cogs of a finely tuned machine after the seawater of a tsunami recedes, our experiences and those of our forebears are never gone. Even if they have been forgotten, they become part of us, a molecular residue holding fast to our genetic scaffolding. It says the DNA remains the same, but the psychological and behavioral tendencies are inherited. You might have inherited not just your grandmother's knobby knees, but also her predisposition toward depression caused by the neglect she suffered as a newborn. And this is a fascinating, fascinating field of science that is kind of interesting because the science proves, and this is, the, this is why I bring the scientific discovery up to you, it only goes three to four generations back. Well, what does God say in commandment number two? I'm going to punish to the third and fourth generation. So even that DNA effect, that epigenetic change on you, it really scientifically has only been discovered to three and four generations, which is phenomenally important to prove that once again, what God says is true. There are generational effects for sin. So I hear what some of you are saying. You're thinking right now in your mind, well, that's just great because my mom was an alcoholic and my dad was a heroin dealer and I am barely saved that I got no chance. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Let me show you something. Let me show you something from scripture that proves that God has the ability to turn all of that misfortune genetically around in your life. In fact, He is even merciful enough and powerful enough to undo that genetic coding and give you a blank slate, fresh start with God. But to do that, I've got to take you to Ezekiel. Let me show you this from Ezekiel chapter 18. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. He says, what do you mean by repeating the words of this proverb saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So first off, let's pause there. You eat a sour grape. What happens? You go and your teeth, they clench. Ooh, ooh, that's the, that's the image here. So he says, why did you, why you guys start saying this stuff that the fathers eat the grapes and the children have to suffer for it? He says, verse uh, three, as I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, the soul whose sins shall die. Okay. Israel is in exile. By the way, how long are they in, when, when Ezekiel 18 is written, how long are they in exile for 70 years? How many generations can you fit into a 70-year period? Three to four. In the ancient world, three to four. What is God saying here? Israel is at its lowest point in exile in Babylon. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, no more. I, I am no longer 
going to allow you to think that you get to blame mom and dad for your condition. Yes, their sins, and this is true, this is absolutely true. We, we studied it in the end of the Kings of Compromise study last year. The sins of the wicked generations led to their deportation to Babylon. And then that generation that was raised and grew up in Babylon, Daniel's generation, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's generation, Esther and Mordecai's generation, they suffered exile because of the sins of their grandfathers and their parents. That's a fact. But the hope that Ezekiel offers here is God is, no, is able to say, we're starting from scratch. Because if I just keep perpetuating this generational consequence into your life, if I keep letting that happen, you've got no hope. And so the thing that we have to see God speaking to his people here is, number one, there are consequences generationally for sin. Number two, God can remove those consequences supernaturally and give you a fresh start and, and start a new righteous line through you. He can turn that lineage around through you. But number three, here's the big, here's the big takeaway. And I don't want you to miss it because this is why I don't want to gloss over any text in the Torah. This is why I want to deal with the hard stuff in this study. What God is really saying is that your sins have consequences communally. Your children will suffer consequences for your negligence to the things of God. Now, if that just says to me, if you really want to love your children, love God, put him first, make sure he's number one in your life. Make sure you do not compromise. Make sure that you are committed to a local church in the word, loving the Lord, leading them to Christ, leading them in the faith because your faith will take root in their reality. And really what God is saying in this commandment, when he talks about visiting the sins of the fathers and the children, do you know what he's saying? Here's what he's saying. He's asking us to be responsible for each other. <gasps> perish, the th- perish the thought in modern American life, in modern Western culture. Oh, you really want me to care about other people? Yeah, yeah. You are not an island. You, John Dunn was wrong. You are not an island. You do not. Or actually, I think he said there, no man is an island. John Dunn was right. <laughs> Your life has consequences. Your life does matter to others. It affects others. Uh, Maimonides, a 12th century Jewish teacher, wrote about this. He said, moral responsibility is something altogether larger than um, legislative responsibility. He says, it is, uh, he says, let not a person say, I have not sinned. And if someone else commits, commits a sin, that is a matter between him and God. He says, this is contrary to the Torah, end quote. I love that. Because, and he was a Jewish scholar, not a Christian scholar, but he's right. The sins of others have an effect on the community. And remember, and this is why we started in part one with the idea that there's a difference between American law and God's law. And American law is the individual is protected from the community. And in God's law, the community is protected from the individual. And that is a huge baseline understanding of all of this teaching, that your sins have an effect on the people around you. So, yes. Perish the thought. Take responsibility for each other. Obey God's law. Listen very carefully. Not just for you, but for those around you. And that is as countercultural as you can possibly get. It obliterates the me only kind of Christianity. It obliterates the version of Christianity, which I cannot stomach that goes from church to church or doesn't go to church and just thinks I'm going to do life with God and me and Jesus. And he's going to be like my back pocket savior. And I'll pull him out when I need him. And I'll do my life on my terms. And I'll listen to worship music on my iPhone. And I'll listen to preaching on my podcast. And that's going to be my religious life. Cause I really don't like Christians and Christians are kind of icky and they're kind of judgmental. And so I'm going to say with them, man, who made you the judge of every Christian who made you so perfect? Wow. You really have it all together. And all those poor, helpless Christians in the church really need your advice, don't they? I mean, that's the mindset behind that ideology. But God is calling us. He's literally saying your sins, your life is a communal reality, not an individual one. And so you need to take care of you before God so that other people can benefit from it and, and glorify God through it. And the community is blessed. I'm only on commandment two, and I'm still only there. I'm sorry. These things matter, though. These teachings matter. And I don't, I'm not going to apologize for taking my time. I hope you don't mind. Uh, Hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. Make sure you do that. Last part of the the commandment is verse six. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice 
the corollary between visiting the sins of the third and fourth generation to loving those thousands. So it's, it's very, very apparent here that God would much rather show love than visit the sins on successive generations. That's what we are to take away from this commandment. We're only two in, and we've already seen, we've already got this holistic view. God wants to be in a, a faithful, committed, intimate, passionate, felt love relationship with us. Commandment number one. Commandment number two, um, he is jealous for us. He, there is a community at stake. We are one with him as a body of believers. Commandment number three, finally, verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So this is that famous um, commandment that we think has to do with our words. And it has way more to do with that than just our words. A couple of Hebrew words we want to take uh, notice of. Uh, first one is take. The word in Hebrew is nasa. It means to carry. So he's not literally speaking about just speaking the word. He's talking about how you carry, how you bring it with you, how you, how you walk through life as a Christ follower. You, when you become a Christian, Christ is in the name, right? So we carry the name of God. What do we pray, by the way? What did Jesus tell us to pray? Our Father in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. And names refer to reputation. You can go to the Torah and you can look at how Jacob was called Jacob because he was deceiver and supplanter. That's what Jacob literally means. He's a taker. Esau was called Esau or Edom, meaning red. Abram, exalted father, is changed to Abraham, meaning father of many nations. So you have these names. Adam in Hebrew just means man. Uh, so you have these names that mean something. Noah, by the way, means rest. So you, 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 you see that character is in the name. And God has chosen to place his name, his character in the name, and place his name on us as his people. The name Israel means wrestling with God, struggling with God. The name Christian means little Christ. That's who we are. Then the second verse or the second word that we want to look at in the text is the word uh, vain, because that's a big word in another passage of scripture, another book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. Everything is meaningless as the teacher. So you, you have this idea of emptiness. That's what it means. That's what this, this commandment is about. You shall not carry God's name or character in your life in an empty way. That means that there must be fullness to who you are. You should be a person of integrity. You should watch how you live around others. Maybe a fun kind of lighthearted way of looking at this is the, is the reason why I do not have a bumper sticker for my church on my car. Number one, I've never liked bumper stickers, but, but number two, and I hate to admit this, but sometimes my driving is a little bit aggressive. I know, I know it's wrong. I am really trying to work on it. The, I need to change. I do. I agree. Uh, but I don't want to misrepresent the name of my church. We have bumper stickers at our church on my, in my driving. You've got to look at it that way. It's a lighthearted look at it, but it's true. Um, a couple more serious ways that we can take God's name in vain. When we um, speak for God in his name, and we're not speaking for God because he hasn't spoken for, to, uh, to us. I am always very careful when people say, and I don't, I don't completely disrespect or reject this, but very very careful of the idea of the Lord told me to tell you, or God gave me a word or whatever. I felt that God was saying this to you or this to me. No, 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 no. We, we, we don't play that game. That's possibly taking God's name in vain. That is actually what Jeremiah condemned the false prophets. Jeremiah 14, he says, the false prophets are prophesying lies in my name. They're, they're taking my name in vain. So that's a way we can take God's name in vain. Um, another way we can take God's name in vain is by just taking light of it. Of course, using Jesus as a curse word is taking his name in vain, using Jesus Christ. I even hear people put the F word in the middle. How derogatory to the Christian faith. Amen. When that is literally spewed about on television, left, right, and center. You ever notice that they never take Muhammad's name? They never take Allah's 
not that these are Allah's real God. It's, again, Satan's first monotheism. But that is uncalled for. And they know better than to take his name or that name in vain. But man, Christianity, Christ, Jesus, uh, open season. That's just kind of, to me, it's a, it's a little reminder that, yeah, he's, he's the God. Because otherwise, Satan wouldn't attack that name. Satan wouldn't try to make that name a curse word in our lips if Jesus Christ's name wasn't the true name by which all men are saved. Another way that we can take God's name in vain is by mocking it or mocking Christianity. I get um, a little bit perturbed by Christians who say, I don't want to be called a Christian. I want to be called a Jesus follower. That bothers me because we are called Christians in the Bible. Um, It also bothers me because it's kind of saying that you're a bit better than regular Christians because what you follow Jesus, you aren't what? (laughs) <laughs> you know, his purchase possession. So that kind of can be a, a, a way of taking it. I don't want to go too deep into how we take, how we commit this sin, but I do want to bring you back to the text because there's something interesting here. This is the only commandment where God doesn't specify what the guilt is. He says, I won't hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. There's going to be a punishment for this. And it's the open-ended commandment. There's no clarity on what does this, what, what happens if you break this commandment? And it might be because the, the, the punishment is spiritual death. Now, again, Christians will slip. Yes, Christians will take his name in vain. Uh, all sin can be atoned for. I'm just trying to show you the respect and honor that God applies to his name. And it should be the respect and honor that we apply to his name. And we should think about this. Carry his name through life, through our world, into our workplaces, into our businesses, into our schools, with great honor, with heaviness and weightiness, right? That word glory in Hebrew, kavud, it means weight. That we are, his name is heavy. It bears a lot of weight in our lives. Amen. Commandment number four, cooking cooking with gas now. Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, this one, right off the bat, what do you notice? It's long. In fact, guess what? This is the longest commandment in the top 10. Um, That's saying something. God does this intentionally in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when writing the text. We are being begged by the length of this commandment to pay close attention. We are being begged to put this one up on a pedestal. This one's different. And this is why I dealt with this one, this uh, fourth commandment. I called it a reference to the first commandment from Genesis chapter uh, uh, 2. And so this is kind of the unofficial first commandment because it actually deals with the first command that God gave to man uh, in the garden. Because look at what happens. He makes the ground, sorry, he makes uh, the Lord God formed the man out of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Verse 8 of Genesis 2, planted a gar- God planted a garden, put the man there, and then talks about the river and uh, all the rivers that are in the garden. Verse 15 God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So right there, you have work as part of the human condition. I said this in part two. Work is not the curse of sin. Frustrating work is. Work is, I believe we're going to be working in the next life. I do. When you create something, don't you get a thrill? That's work. You know, I mean, I think that frustrated work is because we work at jobs that seem menial or we work for the man or we work for some big face, faceless, nameless, personalityless corporation. That I understand. But if you ever take a hobby or you take, you know, your hands and you put them to use building something, I, I build things. I'm a bit of a craftsman. I like carpentry. I, I have gra- two grandfathers who were into car- carpentry. Uh, by the way, Jesus was a carpenter. What does that tell you? Work is good. But this commandment, commandment number four, is a direct direct correlation to that moment in Genesis chapter two, because God is saying, okay, you are made to work, but it is not ceaseless work. The word Sabbath means cease, rest, stop. And if we're stopping our work, have you ever thought about this? It implies the idea 
that there is going to be a cessation of work this side of eternity. Because what does God do in Genesis chapter 2? How does, it, how does the text teach us about who our God is? Thus, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Very important word there. And um, all the, uh, sorry, all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And by the way, the word there in Hebrew is sabayi, which is a, also a corollary to Sabbath. He finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Okay, so God is a rester. God is working to finish something. Now, before we get too far into that, I want to show you a couple things um, that are that are relevant to uh, this this commandment in elsewhere in the Torah. First off, it is practiced by the people of Israel before it is preached. Did you know that? This is the only one that was actually practiced, given them before the Ten Commandments were given them. Let me show you this on the text from Exodus chapter 16. Moses said, eat it today. He's talking about the manna. For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Then he says later in that chapter, verse 29 of Exodus 16, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place and let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. Now, that picture right there is giving us some more um, eternal perspective on the Sabbath, which I'm going to build up to in just a moment. But stop. Don't go out. Don't leave this idea that you are made to cease your work as God ceased his work. By the way, when he ceased his work, he finished creating a place of safety and community between him and man. And now you're going to enter into that participation by ceasing and worshiping him on the seventh day. And you're going to make this your lifestyle. This was the only command that they were commanded to practice before they actually got the command to practice it. It's kind of interesting about that. So it's the longest command. It's the one that was practiced before it was given. Then another passage, Exodus chapter 31, says that this commandment was a sanctification sign for the people of Israel. He says in Exodus 31, 13, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you and throughout all your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The word sanctify, this idea of being made holy, being brought close to God. That is what Sabbath is. Now, how do you practice Sabbath? You practice Sabbath by stopping one day of a week, one day a week to worship God. It is not a day off. It is not just a weekend. It is an opportunity to gather with God's people, worship in God's presence, learn from God's word and live from God's goodness. That is what Sabbath is. And it is a sign. The amount of non-going, non-church attending Christians is abysmal. It is unbelievable. You don't just take the day. You get to places of worship. And it is also, and this is important for our own mental, uh, mental approach to this command, it is a warning against greed. This is what Amos brings up later on in the days of Josiah and Uzziah. Amos was a contemporary of um, Isaiah, and he preaches about the greed of Israel. And he says this in 8... In Amos 8, verse 4, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over? That was a festival that they didn't work on, that we may sell grain and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of wheat. You know, Amos is doing an amazing work here. He is literally striking at the heart of the reason why you're not practicing the Sabbath is because you want to exploit work. You want to exploit others. You want to grow rich on the backs of others. Isn't that a phenomenal teaching and understanding of the Sabbath? The Sabbath, the Sabbath is literally a warning against greed, a warning against trying, working night and day to get ahead and never taking a day off. There are people and some of them are pastors, heaven forbid, who refuse to take a day off because they have this complex. If I work harder, God will love me more. Or they have this idea. If I work harder, I'll make more money. Or if I just work. Uh, Chick-fil-A is the number one growing fast food restaurant in the world. 
and they say loses billions of dollars every week by taking Sundays off. But it is growing at an exponential rate compared to KFC and McDonald's and Burger King. Why? Because God honors this. God honors the cessation of activities to give time for people to worship God and spend time with their families. Chick-fil-A founded by a very devout Christian family. The Sabbath is also a warning for judgment. Jeremiah 17, 27. But if you do not listen to me to keep my Sabbath day holy and not bear a burden and enter the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and shall devour the places, palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. You can see why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes took the Sabbath so seriously. In fact, they had an oral law that they applied to the written law and they had 39 oral traditions, oral stipulations about what constituted work on the Sabbath day. So they had those because they wanted to prove their faithfulness to God by obeying the law very strictly. So the law of the Sabbath was kind of vague. What constitutes work? What doesn't constitute work? So they added 39 oral tradition laws to this one law. We're not going to dig, dig deep into those except one. Number one on the list. And this is a little cute. Uh, not, not cute. This is a very cool biblical uh Insight. Number one on the, thir on the 39 uh, stipulations about the Sabbath list was don't carry anything. Don't carry anything. Okay. You know what Jesus does on the, on the Sabbath day in John chapter 5? He heals the man at the pool of, the, of, of Bethesda. And uh, what does he do? He tells him, do you want to get healed? He says, I don't have no one to help me get up. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. Carry, <laughs> carry your mat. Jesus literally asked him, break that oral tradition because the traditions don't save God's word saves. And I have come as Lord of the Sabbath. It's just a kind of interesting thing. Jesus was always um, hitting the Pharisees right between the eyes. There's another passage of scripture that we should pay attention to when it comes to the Sabbath. There's um, a question. What do we do when somebody breaks this law in Numbers chapter 15? It says in verse 32, while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and said to the congregation, they put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man should be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him, with death, stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay. Yikes. Working on the Sabbath brings death. Yeah. If you don't cease, you will work yourself to death. That's the practical application. If you don't cease works to get saved and rest in this finished work of Jesus, you will go to hell. That is, that is the spiritual application of this trend of this text. But thirdly, if you allow the community and if you allow your world to get so addicted to work that they have no time for family, friends, and fellowship around the word of God, it's like you are committing uh, cultural suicide. And in the West, and particularly in America, that's exactly what we're doing right now. Our young people have no time. Our young people are overworked. Uh, they don't know how to pay their bills. They are you know, put upon to work all these hours, and even older people who are successful and could take the day off, don't take the day off because there is never enough money. The love of money is the root of many forms of evil. One of those evils is you literally kill people with work. Let me show you something else about this text, this, this law, because it's all over the New Testament and I, the Old Testament, the Torah. And I could do a whole, a whole segment on, on just this one law. But it is also a gift of God pointing to salvation. Deuteronomy 12, 10. It says, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety. So you will work in conquering the land, and then God will give you rest. And by the way, it says that in Joshua 14, the, Lord had, the, the land had rest from war. Well, Jesus picks up on this theme, and he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest. This is deep rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, right there, we see Jesus illustrating the fact that his work on the cross will be finished and he will bring us eternal rest for our souls. So in John chapter four, verse 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. But John 1930, he's on the cross. One of the last words of Christ, it says when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He finished his work. Tetelestai in, in, in um, Greek. It is paid in full. I have finished the work to accomplish your salvation. By the way, Jesus also says 
in Matthew and Mark, the Lord, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he also says the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay. Jesus takes ownership of the Sabbath. He fulfills the Sabbath. He, he finishes the work to save us. He brings us into rest with God spiritually. We practice this law. We get ourselves to a church and we fellowship and commune with God to exhibit that, to express that, to experience that. I come to church and I receive the gospel. I receive a reminder. Oh yeah, it's painful. Oh yeah, Jesus has borne my punishment. Oh yeah, I am now accepted in the beloved. Oh yeah, my sins are forgiven. Do you understand how you need a weekly reminder about that? And you need somebody else telling you that? Let me go to Hebrews chapter four, because this is powerful. And I think we're going to have to stop with commandment number four. I'm sorry, guys, but I'm running out of time. Hebrews chapter four, verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. What Hebrews is talking about here is... There is an eternal rest to come. There is an eternal rest to be had in our souls now, in our bodies in the future. But we need to believe. We need to receive God's word and believe it. And by believing, we enter the rest. The people of Israel did not enter into the rest of the land because they did not believe that God could give them rest. You can break that commandment of rest by not believing that Jesus paid it all for you and think that you need to work for your salvation and think that you need to bring something to the table. You need to be a good person. You need to be better. You need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and obey God and then he will love you. Wrong. The law comes to those God has already saved. The law does not get us saved. The law is what we do as we are saved. The spiritual law, the higher law, the moral law. We are invited into God finishing something. Do you get it? Enter into the rest that Jesus has provided for you that will ultimately lead to your eternal salvation. And uh, this is really wonderful when it comes to the commandments because they teach us um, that there's an end goal. Right here in the fourth commandment, there is an end goal for God's people. Do you understand that? And, and you need to understand this. This was earth shattering. This was revolutionary to the ancient world because the ancient world believed that there, everything was a cycle. The, the sun rose and set. The, the moon rose and the set. Um, the seasons changed and the seasons came around again. Right. And if you look at nature, yes. But the, the fourth commandment is an invitation to say, no, 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 no. It's not just this endless cycle. There is a work to be done. It is completed spiritually in Christ. It will be completed at the last day when Christ returns in the physical realm. And we will enter into that and we will rest in God's presence as was originally intended in Genesis chapter two, right? That we were blessed, that God blessed them. They made a holy rest from all his work. And this is what mankind was invited to be a part of. We will have that again in the final rest of God in the last day. And so the fourth commandment is the longest commandment because it is the overarching teaching from the garden and work through the mess of the fall culminated in the work of Christ Jesus on the cross. It is finished and finally consummated in the last day when we enter into eternal glory and rest in God. Yes, we will work. I said that before. We will work in the new heavens and the new earth. I, I think we will, but it will be life-giving work. It will be glorious work. It will be work without frustration, work without sweat, work without thorns, work without sickness, work without exploitation, work without uh, abusing your employees and employers. No, it, it will be glorious heavenly work and you will enjoy it immensely. And that's what God is inviting us to. This is the recreation participation he is asking us to join him in. Summing up 10 words, joining God in recreating. Number one, no one is closer to us than him. Number two, no image diminishing him in our minds and also imagining him as community of care for one another. That's what I was talking about. We are, we are responsible toward each other and for each other. Number three, no living as if he wasn't involved with us. Don't take his name. Don't carry his name in vain. And then number four, no endless work, but a goal-oriented pursuit of joy. There is a target destination for the people of God. And that's 
all I have time for, guys. That's all I have time for. Let me put this up on the screen just to sum that up. When we talk about recreation participation, we are invited to know the Lord, have the Lord, honor the Lord, and join the Lord in recreating the world. Or as I put up last week, father and son, or father and daughters, holding hands together as we see God redeem creation. Wow. Powerful stuff. I love, I love bring the, bringing this content to you. I'm so glad and I appreciate your time with me tonight on The Deep Dive. If you haven't liked the video, like it. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe. If you haven't clicked that notification bell, click the notification bell so that this little guy, which we called an idol tonight, <laughs> will work for your good. We'll tell you to get onto the channel. Support the channel through the cash app, timhatchlive.com. When you support us, we support Project Rescue and the American Bible Society. And that's the show. I look forward to seeing you guys on the deep end next Tuesday. Um, let me just put this up because it's never too early to get your questions in. Ask at timheshlive.com first Thursday of the month. So feel free to do that. Other than that, God bless you. Have a wonderful night in Jesus' name. <laughs>